Superthanks started uh, four years ago with an idea that uh, activism needed more appreciation, not only for the pursuit, but for the pursuers. That there were uh, parts of our social life that get underappreciated, underrecognized, underfulfilled by private markets. And around that same time, the film The Purge came out. I think those are, relatively speaking, unrelated, but I will get back to it. The, one of the rationale for gratitude is not only that we think there are too many underappreciated activities, too many things that uh, happen in the world that we fail to recognize, but also that the pursuit of gratitude, that the expression of gratitude, the feeling of gratitude makes our lives better. Forbes magazine came out with an article citing Berkeley research demonstrating that if you express gratitude on a regular basis, you'll sleep better. They did a, another study that demonstrated if you keep being happy all the time or keep only surrounding yourself with positivity all the time, eventually there might be a little bit of a downturn. Eventually, you don't believe Pollyanna. You just think she's too nice. Eventually, you kind of throw, you think it's a lie. Now, in the film, what they do is they allow wanton lawbreaking, including murder. We will not be encouraging any wanton lawbreaking or murder tonight. But once a year, we do allow for some airing of grievances, and we appreciate you being here. Welcome to Superthank, a podcast focused on gratitude. In this episode, we'll share stories from our fourth annual airing of grievances, an event where we allot our storytellers five minutes to talk about things they're not so thankful for. But in the end, we find there's often a silver lining. Our first storyteller is Dana Lynn Lewis, a visual artist and founder of Gather Make Shelter, an organization that uses art to bridge the gap between people that are experiencing houselessness and those who are more fortunate. I've been in Portland for 30 years. That's a long time. And I've seen a lot of change. I'm going to tell you a story about an experience that I had in Senegal in 2016, where I was an artist in residence at a place called Thread, which is a project of the Joseph Nanny Elbers Foundation. The project's held in this um, place called Sinchin, which is um, noted as one of the five hottest places in the world and also um, incredibly impoverished. I'm using quotes impoverished by our American standards. They're incredibly rich culturally, and they really got their shit together with respect to meeting each other at their base level of humanity on a regular basis. So they're, I think they're above us in a lot of ways. Anyway, the project was amazing. I had this incredible time. I was also there during that election, that election of the man who I won't speak his name. And um, it was really dispiriting and frustrating, and I was having all this big love, 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 wonderful things going on, and then I was the only American in this place. So one night, the doctor had taken all of us to, um, to his house to kill a sheep in honor of us being there, and I'm the only one who didn't eat meat, but that was great. And um, we were all hanging out, and people from all over the world were talking about and asking me, what's going to happen tomorrow if you wake up and he's elected? It was the night before the election. And I said, no, that's not going to happen. And I'm sure lots of people in this room thought the exact same thing, no matter where you were in the world. And lo and behold, of course, next morning he woke up, and Musa, who's the director, came to me, and, and usually he comes to me and he brings the bread, and he says, how did you sleep last night? How are you? What's going on? Well, this morning he looked at me with the strangest look on his face. Like, I thought, I thought the chief of the village had died. I wasn't sure. And he came to me just like with this giant, strange, weird grimace. And I said, Musa, what's happened? And he said, 
Trump. And I said, no, 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 that's not, and he said, no, 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 really, that did happen. And so I had all this white fabric. I started crying. I had all this white fabric in my room that I was going to paint all these, like, spiritual, lyrical drawings on, and I dyed them all black. And because it's so hot there, it, 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 it was just dry in a minute. And I wrapped myself in them, and I sat in that room and cried. Musa came back later, and he said to me in a couple hours, and he said, Dana, I, you have a lot of good things that you're doing here, and I want you to know that something good will come of this. And I'm like, yeah, what the hell? What's going to come of this? But then I have to look at who's telling me this. And it's somebody who has come from historically a place where culturally, um, continentally, communally, and interpersonally, they have survived so much. And they rise above it, and they work together, and they meet each other at their base level of humanity every day to do that. And they're, and they're really amazing. So fast forward a little bit. I have this great time in Senegal. I get over what I have to encounter when I get home. And I come back, and it's Portland, and it's the United States, and it's January, and there's tons of people on the street, and there's tons of people that are just talking to each other incredibly angrily all day long, from morning to night. The people that I live with, the people that are in um, the grocery store line, they're just bitching at each other. Every, every, all I'm hearing is negative, 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 negative. And I thought, I'm going back to Senegal. I can't stand this, because I'm going to lose it if I have to stay here like this. And then I thought, okay, it's one thing to go to another country and to do something. It's another thing to figure out how to do something in your own place. And like I said, I've been in Portland for 30 years, and I started to hate Portland. I mean, I hate Portland for a lot of, started hating Portland for a lot of reasons. My studio, the beautiful vision of the river that I have, has, has now like rear window condos, people looking at me, and I have to navigate that. I have an incredible studio. I'm lucky I have the best landlord in Portland. Um, gratitude, got to go back to that. But figuring out, got to do something, got to take this and harness it and do something positive. So that's where Gather Make Shelter came out of, and it's a citywide collaboration with people experiencing homelessness. Like as as Jefferson said, um, philanthropists, artists of all sorts coming together to make a fundraiser that ultimately um, we sold all the beautiful things that we made at Pioneer Courthouse Square, and we got people into housing with that money. In addition, the people who are working on the project who are experiencing homelessness got paid to work on it, and we're moving into the future with this project. So trying to figure out like how to take all that like anger and frustration and not run away from it and do something, and we call it the love bomb of Portland. So I have cards with me. You guys can check it out, and um, thanks for listening. <laughs> Our second storyteller is Desmond Spann. Desmond is an author, teacher, musician, and motivational performer. He blends his love of words with his musical training to help youth express themselves through language. All right, so the story I'm going to share today uh, reminds me of this verse. Do you mind if I share this verse with you real quick? Is that okay? All right, all right. Many elite Critiques impeach my speech, because I'm from streets. With ease I speak, no proper diction, just contradiction. My truth, their fiction, my words, their lynching. They hang from trees, turn cold in the breeze, and drug through the streets and bleed till decease. Elites would say, good riddance anyway. There's nothing poetic about their play. This story starts at the dentist. You've been to the dentist before? <laughs> And I don't know what it is about going to the dentist or being a dentist, but apparently I think every extroverted person in the world is a dentist because 
that is the time that they want to talk to you the most. But the problem when they want to talk to you is that you can't really respond back because generally you have your mouth open like, ah, and you're like laying on your back and you have a light shining in your eyes and they're like scraping your teeth, right? So this is, of course, the perfect time to uh, get in a conversation about race. (laughs) So how this plays out (laughs) is, again, I'm at the dentist, I'm on my back, you know, teeth, whatever that sounds like uh, to you. And this dentist or dental assistant, I'm not sure, um, is going on and just, just talking about you know, her day, oh, my day was this, and da, 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 and then, oh, you're a teacher, right? Uh-huh. What do you teach? Eh? And then she takes a thing out of my mouth. What do you teach? English. Oh! Now, for it, anybody who ever taught English before, just don't tell people you teach English, because <laughs> the first thing they will do is ask you an English question. Like, what is the proper way to say something? So she asked me this question. Like, what's the proper way to say, you know, is it lie or lay? Right? <laughs> lie or lay? Because she goes on, like, yeah, I'm just in a debate with my friend because, you know, sometimes people lie in their back, but you should be laying on your back in this particular situation and da 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 And keep in mind, teeth scraping. Like she's in my mouth. I can't respond. Right. And now the thing about that particular question about the proper way to speak is that who decided what's proper didn't look like me. Right. Who decided what's proper kind of made a living off of people that look like me. And when I think about my time in school, when I think about like how I know how to switch and talk like this so I am more accepted, that's code switching if you don't know, right? Versus talking like, yeah, what's up? What's going on, man? Like to be more accepted, one is more proper than the other, right? So imagine you're a kid, the way you naturally speak your voice, probably the closest thing to your sense of identity, is automatically told to be wrong when you step into English class. And then imagine that you don't do well in that English class. Not hard to imagine, right? Because essentially, the closest thing that's to your identity, your voice, the establishment is already saying doesn't belong does it fit in? You need to learn how to speak the way we speak, which is proper in order to be accepted, right? This is racist, okay? Now, of course, this is my opinion, and if we had more time than five minutes, I could break it down for you, but basically because I didn't get a chance to be at the table when they decided, like, which way is proper English, And then the way that I naturally speak, the way that I would naturally speak at home with my friends, where I'm understood, I step into a new space that I don't control, that I don't have the power, kind of like in a dentist chair when I don't have the power, when you have that stuff in my mouth. That is like the definition of like deciding who's in and who's not in, right? So there's a point 
where she asked, what do you think? And I think to myself, do I engage or do I not engage? I decided to engage. All right, thank you guys. <laughs> Next up, we have David Mowry. He is a stand-up comic, author, and public speaker who teaches stand-up comedy to people experiencing mental illness. Dave is a co-founder and the executive director of the Peer Wellness and Work Initiative, a nonprofit offering comprehensive peer support to peers with a mental illness and peer employment support for those looking for work. I live with mental illness. I live with bipolar disorder and severe anxiety, and uh, which is interesting because I live in Happy Valley. <laughs> but Happy Valley is really a misnomer. There is no valley. <laughs> um, I lived through my dark days and my challenges, and I used to grieve my lost years, and. Uh, but over time, I, over time, I've, I've come to, to, to live with that and to find humor in it. But I'll tell you what I haven't found any humor in and what grieves me is the ignorance and the stigma surrounding mental illness. People, when I was first diagnosed, uh, friends, people I thought were my friends, they disappeared from my life. Neighbors, uh, friends of our kids, they would... Uh, wouldn't be able to play at our house anymore. And the invitations to the Thanksgiving, or not the Thanksgiving, but the, the holiday party, the Halloween party, and the, and, the, and the New Year's Eve party, those quit coming. And over time, that, that wore on us, and that's what really pissed me off. And there were times, there were business opportunities where just disappeared. I was a businessman, and these business opportunities just disappeared, and people said the same things. They'd found out that I was diagnosed with a mental illness, and they just uh, couldn't find the time to work with me, or they didn't have the bandwidth, or whatever the, the story was. And I owned a Subway sandwich shop down at Portland State University. I owned six Subway sandwich shops, one at Portland State University, and, and um, I knew the people there, lots of people there, professors, people in the facilities department, and uh, athletics, and we were, we were friends, we'd talk, we'd banter, we'd have coffee, and then after they found out about my diagnosis, I'd be walking down the hall and I'd see them coming and I'd know they saw me and I'd get ready to smile and say hi, and they'd look down and walk past me. And one time was no big deal, and the second time was, oh, you know, maybe they didn't see me, but the third and the fourth and fifth, you know, were real. Those are the things that pissed me off. Those are the things that get me the stigma and the ignorance surrounding mental illness. But through Mental Health at the Mic with my cohort, Kelly Wilson, who's here, we've, we find the humor. I teach people how to find the humor in their mental illness and teach stand-up comedy, and we perform. We just had a big show at Helium. We had 175 people, and it was a great success. We're actually a thing. So Mental Health at the Mic, you might see us around. But, um, and it's, it's, I haven't been able to find any humor in being shunned. But um, I have been able, we have been able to find some humor in some of the other things in the dark days, like, like um, and even make, make, find jokes, make jokes, write jokes about things like suicide. Like, uh, 
one day when things were going really, really bad, I decided to end it all. So I went into the bathroom and I took a bunch of pills. Afterwards, I called my wife for help. She said, there are more pills under the sink. <laughs> yes. So a topic that's never funny, right? Uh, but I can tell the joke because I, I've been there. And then the other thing, my, my bipolar disorder was, uh, was, was bad because the, the highs were bad and the lows were really bad, but there was a time of, of peace and constant consistency in the middle. But the anxiety dis disorder was, was the worst, is the worst, because it was constant, it was always with me. And uh, one of the ways the, the anxiety disorder manifested itself was when I went into a public restroom. Um, if anybody else was in there, I just, I just couldn't go. I just, I just couldn't go, and I'd try, it just wouldn't happen. And so I'd leave the restroom and, and go out and wait until nobody else was there, maybe for five minutes, maybe for half an hour. But then uh, a couple months ago, my wife and I went to, uh, to a movie. And afterwards, I went into the restroom, and there were other people there. And uh, I went up and I went. And at that moment, I realized how far I'd come. And I stepped back from the urinal and went, yes, yes, yes! <laughs> the other people in the restroom looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> I said, no, not anymore. <laughs> Thank you. Our fourth storyteller is Megan McGeorge. She's the founder and executive director of Piano Push Play, an outreach project about developing more ways for people to engage with the piano in action. It began as a pop-up concert with one piano on one street corner. Now Piano Push Play provides repurposed pianos all over Portland that are open to be played by the public to create tiny, magical, musical moments. Hello, everybody. I'm Megan from Piano Push Play. I love how you said the people from Piano Push Play, and it's still just one person. <laughs> Do it all. That's how a lot of um, nonprofit and projects um, happen. Anyway, so I'm going to start my story. I think a lot, when a lot of people find out that I'm the person behind Piano Push Play, if you have already happened to heard of it, because actually it's been a lesson in humility after doing this for seven years that there's still people all the time that I'm like, oh, have you seen those pianos around town in the summer? There's like 10 or 20, you know, between summers. And a lot of people are like, no, never. I don't know what you're talking about. Of course, there's a huge community of people that are amazing fans and supporters and players, and they know exactly what I'm talking about and um, support what I do. But when people find out what it is that I do, they're always, like, usually amazingly um, aghast that I can say now, after seven years, that putting pianos on the streets of Portland is my day job, which um, I never sought out to or imagined that that would be the case when I started it. For about four or five of the first years of doing it, I worked full-time as a residential youth counselor. I lived in a closet with no windows because it was $50 a month. And because somehow I was like, I really want to be able to record my music and I want to be able to see this piano thing just keep going. And I was putting my own money into it. So um, it really took literally living in a, in a tiny closet for a couple years to um, see it become what it is now, which it's, it's my job and it's my honor. Um, but when, you know, and everybody sees it and they all think it's, it's incredibly joyous, 
and there are so many m moments of beauty that I hear about, but um, it's, it's hard when um, everybody perceives it as such a beautiful thing, and it is, but they have no idea how much work goes into it. Um, any art installation or any community project or any nonprofit has so much work that goes behind one event or one gallery opening or one body of work. And every summer I, I find 10 pianos and I find 10 new artists and I logistically make sure that they can get to the artist studio and um, the artist has all the time and information to like give me their time and talent for free, make it into a new work of art. And I work with the city and I work with businesses to, to put them into these places where anybody can interact with them and play them and talk to a stranger and teach a stranger a song or go there with their friend who's a violin player and play a duet. So all these beautiful moments happen and it's moments like those or stories I receive through Facebook or Instagram saying, I was going into surgery at OHSU um, uh, on Saturday and somehow I was taking a walk on the waterfront and I found your piano and I sat and I played some music and it made me feel like I was strong enough to go into surgery. <laughs> I've gotten stories like that. I've gotten um, tons of amazing feedback. Um, uh, and because it's always perceived as so joyous and it, I'm so lucky to have this as a day job, it's hard for me to um, feel okay airing my grievances <laughs> about, wow, what a tough thing it can be to have something that's so personal and passionate for me and such an expression of myself um, be out there in the public. And sometimes it's not perfect. And sometimes it doesn't go as well as um, I always say it goes. But I guess, you know, and it's been an interesting um, experience to give people these things. Put, put pianos on the streets for two months now. Um, move them around. They're tuned every week. I do all this at no cost to the public, of course. Um, and they probably look at what we look like today and think that the city funds it or the symphony funds it or something like that. And it's, that's still not the case. It's still funded by private individuals and generous businesses that give me a little bit here and there that adds up. But um, it's been an exercise for myself to constantly do something. And even though I run up against people emailing me every summer, hey, why isn't there a piano out right now, like November? And there is, but um, why, where are all the 10 from this summer? Where did they go? Why aren't they out longer? Can they come to my neighborhood? Can they, um, you know, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Um, and, you know, the loudest voices always seem to be the most critical, which is so hard when I, um, I know in my soul that it's touching thousands of people. I know that for sure. And, and they just don't send me those messages. Um, so the grievance is like, I, I seem to, <laughs> I experience a lot of people having some complaints and I never really share those with people. I just try and work better and also just work through the fact that I know that a greater majority of people are experiencing these things and having magic and a bit of moment, beauty in their lives um, instead of the people that are complaining I didn't put a piano out longer in their closest park, so. There you go. Is that my five minutes?
You're listening to Superthink, a podcast about gratitude. Don't go away just yet. We'll continue these stories in Airing of Grievances Part 2, including stories from a comedian, a death doula, an award-winning author, and a playwright.